We're in week four of our series called But I Say, and what we're navigating through is this little section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes these uh, everyday examples and, and shows us what the exceeding righteousness of the kingdom looks like. And here's what I mean, and I use that word exceeding because that's the word Jesus used. That's the word he used. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus has kind of given us the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been here over these weeks, we've said this verse almost every week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says um, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that word exceeds, the Greek word for that is the word periseo, periseo, that doesn't matter at all to you except to know this. Here's what it means. It means to be like a river overflowing its banks. That's the, what the word means that Jesus used. And what he's saying is, unless your righteousness overflows that of what the scribes and Pharisees says it has to look like. They've said it looks like this. Here's the banks. I'm telling you, unless your righteousness, like a, ri- a flooding river, overflows that, Unless you have a greater righteousness than those guys, and at that moment, those were the most righteous people that, that the people had ever seen. And so he says, unless it's greater than that, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And I have to imagine, as Jesus is setting this new standard of kingdom values, he sees this shocked look on their face, because the Pharisees told everyone else how to be righteous. And now Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness is, is better than that, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And I have to imagine he's looking at faces now that feel very confused, very lost, and probably going, well, I'm tapping out. I can't, nobody's going to make it. If those guys aren't making it, none of us have a chance. And so Jesus says, okay, let, let me give you some examples now of what this exceeding righteousness looks like. And then he gives us six examples in Matthew chapter 5. Um, He started with the issue of murder, and he said this, you thought that the standard of righteousness was just don't murder. What I'm telling you is exceeding righteousness is do not be angry in your heart. So you see, he's setting this new value system. And two weeks ago, he said, um, you thought the standard was just don't commit adultery. If I can just avoid doing that, then I'm going to be in righteousness. He said, but exceeding righteousness, what the kingdom requires, says, do not lust after someone in your heart. So again, he's raising the standard. And last week, he said, you thought that as long as that you could not prioritize your marriage and as long as your divorce was just nice and legal and didn't really affect anything, everything's fine. But the standard of righteousness is to prioritize your marriage. And so this week, he is saying, um, he's going to deal with the issue of swearing oaths and of, of having um, integrity in your word, integrity in the word that you give and being honest. And so um, I was reading this week, there was a study done in 2010 by uh, a group called the Human Communications Research Group, which sounds like just a party, you know, their Christmas parties have to be amazing. Um, Human Communications Research Group did a study about lying in 2010. They studied 1,000 people, and their goal was to find out, one, how often do people lie? Two, when and where do we lie the most? And three, are we even aware 
of how often we are deceptive. That was kind of the goal of the study. And here was the big takeaway that they came out. Out of those thousand people, they came to uh, understand that people lie an average of four times a day. Four times a day. Some, in some shape or form, four times a day, you're just, now before you yell at me, I want you to know, it's not my study. I didn't do it, right? I'm reporting facts. You don't get mad at me. And, and so um, bef- before you say, oh, that's not me though. I don't do it. There's no way I lie four times a day. Let me help you understand what they meant by lying. Of course, they're talking about out and out lying, right? Here's the truth. I'm going to say the opposite of that. Obviously, we know that. But here's the other stuff that's included in lying and being um, deceitful. Slightly changing facts in my favor. Just a slight. It's deceitful. Exaggeration. Hello. Right? Nobody has, I'm a, I like telling stories and I love a good story and I've been known to exaggerate. Just a skosh. Uh <laughs> Uh, telling a half-truth, meaning I'm going to say some that's true, but I'm going to avoid saying all that's true. Peggy Darby said a half-truth. That's my mama. She said a half-truth is a full lie. Anybody else's mama teach you that? Okay. My mama taught me that. Um, How about having hidden motives? That's being deceitful. How about taking credit for an idea or work that wasn't yours? That's being deceitful. How about this one? And this gets all, if I haven't got you yet, we're all in the boat here. Presenting the ideal version of yourself, not what's real. Okay, now we know we're all in the boat, right? So (laughs) the point is, none of us are immune from this. None of us are immune uh, from this issue. And uh, I thought we'd play a little game here on the front end. Um, About two months ago, uh, our staff, we, we were doing staff chapel for our team, and we do that once a month. We just get together and we worship, and our staff is always growing, and, and uh, so w- because we always have new people being a part of the team, we like to do these icebreaker games, these get-to-know-you games, and try to learn each other a, a little better. So we were playing this icebreaker game called Two Truths and a Lie. Has anybody played this in a group? The, right, you have three statements. Two of them are true. One of them's a lie. So I just thought we would do that together and see if you could figure out about me what the truths are and what the lie is. And so I've got three statements I'm going to put up, and I just want to see if you can figure it out. Here's the first one. I once played catch with the Texas Rangers. Okay, maybe. Let's see. Here's the second one. I invented a popular dance called the stanky leg. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Here's the third one. I can smell the color purple. Okay, so I'm going to put those out there. This is going to put one, two, and three. Texas Rangers, stanky leg, smell the color purple. Now, two are true, one's a lie. If you think one is a lie, raise your hand that I've never played catch with the Texas Rangers. Anybody? That's right, that is true. All right, who thinks two is a lie, that I invented the stanky leg? Okay, I just want, here's, here's something that has floored me all day. This is, by the way, Y'all aren't the only ones. This is a disease our whole campus has, and as the pastor of this church, I feel like it's my fault. Somehow it's on me. Do y'all know colors don't have smell? Does everybody know that? You can't actually smell a color, okay? So the lie is I cannot smell the color purple, obviously. Now, here's what that does mean. 
I invented the stanky leg 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I made it up. My wife is sitting right here. She'll tell you. Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. I knew somebody was going to ask that. I just need this church to know I made it up. I've got that club in my bag, and I never got credit for it. I need everybody in this room to know that. I am covenantly obligated to this woman, and she would not lie. She knows I'm telling the truth. My wife and my children have seen it their whole lives. My dance. It's mine. Nope, I ain't doing it. Uh, You're just going to have to trust that during a sermon on honesty, I'm telling you the truth. That's all you're going to be able to get. So... Here's the second one. I got three more. Here, this one will be uh, maybe a little more challenging. I, by the way, I cannot believe y'all think I can smell the color purple. <laughs> okay. What does purple smell like? Grapes? I don't know. All right. Is this true or a lie? I've never seen the princess bride. Here's the second one. I like peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. All right. Here's the third one. I used to feed live mice to a boa constrictor. All right. So let's walk through these. A little more challenging. Who thinks number one is a lie, that I've never seen the princess bride? Okay. Who thinks number two is the lie? All right. And who thinks number three is the lie? All right. I want to tell you a couple things. One, number three is not a lie. I used to own a boa constrictor, and um, if you've never fed a live mice to a boa constrictor, you have not lived your life yet. Uh, because it is wicked cool and a little horrifying. Um, <laughs> and I, ha- I, by the way, I do like peanut butter and pickle sandwiches. They are actually pretty good. If you've never tried it, crunch, extra crunchy peanut butter, dill pickles, let it ride. It's going to be good. Um, now, I've never seen The Princess Bride. That is actually, um, that should have said my favorite movie is the Princess Bride, and that is a lie because it is true that I've never... So I actually put three truths up there. That's how deep my integrity runs, you know what I mean? (laughs) I've been yelled at all morning about not seeing the Princess Bride. It's like made people furious that I've never seen this movie, but um, I really haven't. And so the point is, when we think about this idea of lying and deception, I think if we're honest, here's what we're going to find out. One, none of us are immune to it, and two it comes way easier to us than we want it to. Are you with me on that? None of us are immune to the disease, and it comes way easier to us than we wish um, that it would. And we may have all sorts of ways of kind of dancing around it and covering it up and we'll call it, oh, it's just a, it's just a little discrepancy and oh, just a little misunderstanding and it's a little white lie, right? And we might package it and, and try to shape it and make it look a certain way, but at the core of what it is, it's deception. And this morning, I want you to know Jesus wants to deal with that and shine the light of his word on it this morning. And, and I think he wants to reveal what kingdom righteousness has to say about it. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 is where we're going to start. It says this, again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take 
an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your help this morning. I need your help, Father. I need the presence of your Spirit to illuminate your Word and speak through your Word. Spirit, we need your help uh, to war against the enemy. Uh, the enemy would have us minimize this issue in our life and tell us it's really not a big deal, not something we have to worry about. And God, I'm asking that in the light of your holiness, you would draw this out of us. So would you give us pliable hearts, God? Would you give us moldable hearts? Your word says you're the potter. So would you kind of shape our hearts this morning, God, and, and reveal these impurities and draw them out? And Father, we, we, we ask that you would do this for the sake of your glory and to make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these verses... Um, initially, you might think, look, he, Jesus isn't even talking about lying. He says, don't swear an oath. He's, he's not even talking about lying. But as Jesus is addressing the issue of, of swearing oaths, what he's teaching is that the kingdom of God demands a different kind of integrity and a different kind of honesty. Here's why. The religious leaders had taught that as long as you didn't uh, commit perjury, or make an oath before God and break it, then you were fine. As long as you didn't, in, in, a, in a court of law, commit perjury, or make an oath before God and not keep it, then you were fine, you were good. And what they did was create all sorts of loopholes and all sorts of ways to um, be able to make a promise and not keep it. And they had mastered this art of deception of convincing someone and giving them a promise, but always leaving themselves a way out in how they made the promise. And, and in general, what they had developed was they began to feel justified in blurring the edges of the truth. Now, I want us to sit with that statement for just a minute because I, I, want, I want you to just be already on the front end, beginning to ask yourself and resonate with this. Just ask, not if, but where do I blur the edges of truth? Right? This isn't just a Pharisee issue. And what Jesus is addressing is how the Pharisees have taught that it's okay to blur the edges of truth. Here's what it would look like. They would do things like, you can, this is, sounds silly to us, but listen, they would say, you can swear by heaven, but if you swear by the throne of heaven, you have to keep that promise. Now, if you just swear by regular old heaven, no big deal. Swear by the throne of heaven, you have to keep it. They said, you can swear by the temple, and that's okay. But if you swear by the altar in the temple or by the gold in the temple, well, now you have to keep that. Right? That is, as long as they didn't swear something um, uh, that, that, that what they swore was toward anything other than God, as long as they kept God out of the promise, then it wasn't binding. And Jesus is addressing this issue because it had become pervasive into the people. And people weren't keeping their oaths. They weren't keeping their word. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, people that have been transformed by the gospel, there's a different standard of integrity. Jesus addresses this uh, very same issue again specifically with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. 
So he speaks to it in Matthew 5, but in Matthew 23, he's uh, speaking directly to the Pharisees. And in that chapter, he's like pronouncing these warnings toward them and these woes. And he's saying, guys, you're missing it. And in Matthew chapter 23, look at verse 16. He says this, woe to you, blind guides. By the way, Jesus always had some epic way of describing the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. (laughs) Blind guides, whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers. I mean, when he used those words, it wasn't just to insult. It was to help them understand their own spiritual condition. He says, woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that is made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him Now he's talking about God, by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Here's the point Jesus is making in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 23. The point is this, you cannot keep God out of any promise because God is in everything. You can't keep God out of any promise. He's in everything. If you swear by heaven, he's there. If you swear by the earth, he created that. He's there too. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you can't even swear by the hair on your own head because you can't make one white or black. He created you, and that means you belong to him. You can't swear by the... Some of us can't even decide if our hair is going to stay or go, bless the Lord. We have so little say on what's happening up here, right? I did not get a vote on this, and then it just happened. And the point is, I, I, because I have no control of that, I can't swear by that. And Jesus' point is this. You don't own heaven. You don't own the earth. And you don't own you. You belong to God. He's in everything. And you can't make a promise that doesn't include him. That's the point that he's making. He's establishing that for the people of God, they are to live with a kingdom integrity. A kingdom integrity. So the question I want us to answer this morning is this. How do we move away from this issue of lying and deception, which we've acknowledged we all have? How do we move away from the issue of lying and deception and move toward being a people of kingdom integrity? So there's two realities. I want to give you just two things that I want us to see this morning that I think will help us move toward being people of kingdom integrity. The first is this. I think we have to understand where this issue comes from. So deception is the byproduct of our sinful disposition. That's the first reality I think we have to embrace and understand. Deception is the byproduct of our sinful disposition. Human nature, since the fall, has had a problem. The problem is this, we are at our very core dishonest. At at the core of who we are, it's who we are. We are dishonest. And I want you to think about the garden. 
I want you to think about the first sin that entered into the world. What was the first sin? It was a lie. Lying was the first. Satan lied to Eve. But now follow this. Satan lies to Eve. Eve passes that lie to Adam. Adam ultimately lies to God. You remember, they, they, they disobey, they eat of the tree. God comes walking in the cool of the day, and what are Adam and Eve doing? They're hiding. They're hiding. Just a case, I don't know who this is for this morning. Any version of hiding in your life is a form of lying. Are you with me? Satan lied to Eve. Eve passes that lie to Adam, and Adam ultimately lies to God. We were deceived by a lie and are by nature liars. Deception is our native tongue. (laughs) We speak it fluently. Amen? Are you with me? We speak this fluently, and we are all bent toward this sin of dishonesty. But listen, not only do we see Satan in the lie at the garden, I want you to see what Jesus teaches, because what Jesus teaches is that at the root of all deception is Satan. Deception of any kind is from Satan. You see this in John chapter 8. Jesus has this group of people around him in John chapter 8, many of whom are brand new believers. They've just trusted in his word and have become believers and they're following him and they don't know anything. They don't know that they have a sin nature. They believe that because they are descendants of Abraham, because they call Abraham father, that they have a righteousness and they're just fine before God. And Jesus is trying to show them, no, you've got this whole sin nature thing going on. And so I want you to see what he says in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, you are, your, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the what? Father of lies. Lying is not a small thing. It is not a small thing because in the origin of every lie is Satan himself. He is the father of lies. So we just need to hear this teaching this morning. Every time I hide, Satan is in the origin of that. Every time I bend the facts to favor me just a little bit more, he's in that's. It's the influence of him in my life. Every time I shape a conversation outside of what's 100% true, that is the influence of his lie. And when we lie, not only do we show that we've been influenced by him, but we punt the door open for more of his influence in our life. What do I mean? Who knows that it's true that in order to maintain the first lie, I usually got to tell another one? Why is it so quiet in here? Did nobody else learn the song? When you tell one lie, leads to another. When you tell two lies, covers the other. 
when you tell three lies, oh brother, and you stumble up to your ears. Anyway, I sang weird songs growing up. The point is, as you begin to be deceptive, as you tell a lie, the only thing that can happen on the other side of a lie is we have one of two choices. One, it's going to have to be followed by another to maintain the first, or you're going to have to own the first and tell the truth. That's it. You've got no other options. You're going to have to tell another to maintain the first, or you're going to have to own the first and reveal the truth. And the more that we allow this influence from the enemy, the more we find ourselves in the rhythm of minimizing what's true, changing the facts, hiding our real motives, presenting something of ourselves that isn't true, making someone else look bad so that we look better, taking credit for their idea when it wasn't really ours. And this is why God's word is absolutely brimming with uh, warnings against deceitfulness and blessings in truthfulness. Listen to some of these. In Psalm chapter 5, the word says, You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Pretty strong language. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16 says this. These are the things that you shall do. This is what the Lord wants you to do. What is that? Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make peace. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false witness. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. A strong language. So let's just get practical. So in your work, if you're in sales, when you intentionally mislead a person about their purchase, when you manipulate the fine print to close a deal, um, if you tell a person they can financially afford something when you know they really can't. And listen, I'm grateful our church has actually some godly men and women who are in things like realty and car sales, and I'm thankful for them because they will tell you the truth about what you can afford because some of you don't know you need the $4,000 car, not the $44,000 one, and I'm one of them, right? I roll up and I'm like, here we go, Escalade, Right? And what I need is something else. And I need people in my life who go, hey, man, you, get your eyes off that. Look over here. Right? And we have some of those godly men and women in our church. But we've also probably had interaction with people who would gladly lead you into something you can't afford to close a deal. Right? How many have ever been messed up by the fine print? Maybe that's just me. What if you intentionally add to or change a story to make yourself look better, to make someone else look bad. What's the point? Jesus is 
using this strong language because he doesn't want us to miss the reality that this is a byproduct of the enemy's influence in our life. And he shows us this to help us understand the reality that when we battle the sin of dishonesty and lying, it is a supernatural battle because it is the influence of the enemy. He's a supernatural enemy, which means we need a supernatural power to overcome it. You cannot defeat the sin of lying and deceitfulness and blurring the edges of truth outside of the gospel. Can't do it. You can't do it, which leads us to our second point, and that is this. Integrity is the outworking of gospel transformation. So if deception is the byproduct of our sinful state, our sinful disposition, how do we work our way out of that? The gospel It is the gospel that does this work. It is the transforming work of the gospel that moves my words from dishonesty to integrity. Look again at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Do you see how he's raising the standard of verbal integrity? When you say yes, mean it. When you say no, mean it. When you make a promise, stick to it. If you say you'll do it, do it. Follow through with it. Because honesty, truthfulness, is an evidence of the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. Just like dishonesty is an evidence of the enemy's influence, when I walk in truthfulness and integrity, it is a banner declaration of being filled with the Holy Spirit and transformed by Jesus. In John 14, 15, and 16, which by the way are the Jesus' teaching on who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in us. So if you're ever wondering, I'm going to get a grip on the Holy Spirit, John 14, 15, and 16. In all three of those chapters, Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes that Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. In John chapter 17, verse 17, God's word is described as the word of truth. And in John chapter uh, uh, 14, verse 6, Jesus describes himself as the way and the what? The, the truth. And the, here's what the gospel does. The gospel introduces me to Jesus who is full of grace and truth and then fills me with the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth and then draws me to the word of God which is the word of truth and empowers me to live this life by the one who is the way and the truth. And as I navigate away from that, I navigate away from the power to walk in truthfulness. I can't do it. Are you you walking in the gospel? Has your life been transformed by the gospel? You cannot walk this life of integrity apart from the person and work of Christ, who is the truth, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, and a life built, shaped, founded, and, and fueled by the word of God, which is the word of truth. And I think we've got to hear that Jesus isn't just saying, live your lives and don't lie. 
He's saying, live your lives and pursue the truth. He's saying, I expect more from my kingdom citizens than to just avoid lying. I expect them to love the truth so much, they wake up every day and they chase after it. They want it. He's setting a new standard. He's saying kingdom citizens um, will, will never be more truthful under oath and they'll never be less truthful when they haven't sworn an oath. In other words, for the kingdom citizen, when we say it, it becomes a binding contract because gospel integrity is in it. That's what he's saying. When a kingdom citizen gives their word, it should need nothing more than their word to uphold their word. My word should need nothing more than my word to uphold it. There will be that much integrity in it. I want to be the man who, when I tell you I'm going to do something, does it. And you see that as a pattern in my life so much that the next time I tell you I'm going to do it, there isn't a doubt in your mind whether I will or I won't. You know I will. That's the man I want to be. I want to be the man who says when I won't do something, You'll never catch me do that thing. That's the man I want to be. That's the man I want to teach my sons to be. I want to teach them how to walk in gospel integrity and teach them that their word matters. We shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to layer oaths on top of our word to give them weight. But how often have you found yourself saying things like, I swear to God? I swear, man. It's true. I swear. I swear to God. I swear on my mother's. I swear on the life of my fill in the blank. What's the point? For those who have been transformed by the gospel, their word does not need that. We are to walk in such a standard of integrity that if I simply say this is true, people have experienced my integrity enough to know it's true. Now you say, well, what about when we got to swear in court and contract? You're not going to avoid contracts. Our culture's built on them. You're going to have to testify in court if you ever do, which means you're going to have to swear. By the way, Jesus spoke under oath in front of Pilate. He took an oath. Paul took several oaths. The point is, not am I going to have to one day stand in court and take an oath. The point is, as I live my everyday life, will my words be filled with honesty and integrity? So let me ask you this simple question. Can your speech be trusted? Can your words be trusted? Oh yeah, most of the time. Can the words that come from your mouth be trusted to be absolutely true, not a portion of the truth, not a fraction of the truth? Truth. Or do you find yourself, like me, battling to not blur the edges, to make sure our motives aren't hidden? I'm asking you to think and ask, be honest. You know, we've dealt with some difficult things over the last few weeks. If you've been here all four weeks, you know we've dealt with some hard things. 
We've dealt with the issue of anger. We've dealt with the issue of lust. We've dealt with the issue of not prioritizing our marriage. This morning, we're dealing with the issue of being honest. And, and I want to make some room this morning for us to just be truthful in this place. I want you to think back over the last four weeks. And, the, and I want us to make some room to just, did you know that the Lord loves the truth? He loves it. He loves it. In Psalm 51, David said, Behold, you delight in truth. It is your joy for me to speak truth. Now, I want you to think about where David was in Psalm 51. You remember the story? He'd committed the sin with Bathsheba. Remember? So he lied. He took what wasn't his. Then he had her husband murdered. Told another lie. Why? Because the influence of the enemy was in there. Then the prophet comes to him, tells him a story about a man who took something that didn't belong to him. And the prophet goes, King, what would you do? And David said, I'd kill that man if he did that. Nathan goes, that's you. And it was in this process of repentance that David remembered this truth that he had forfeited through all of those choices he had made. He remembered this truth. God, wait a minute. You delight in the truth. It actually brings you joy for me to be honest. So for some of you this morning, the first step of truth is for you to be honest with God. For you to be honest with God. Some of you just need to ask yourself, where am I really in my relationship with Jesus? Do I just look the part? Have I read, do I know how to really dress it up so that I look the part? Some of you look the part, but you've never been transformed by the gospel. If I were to ask you to find that moment for me where you met Jesus and he changed you for, oh, pastor, I go to church, I give, we serve, I've even been on a mission trip. Fantastic. Tell me about the moment Jesus changed you forever. When was that? That hasn't happened. You need to be honest before God. That's the first step. Some of you need to be honest about baptism. You've, you've given your heart and life to Christ, but you've never gotten in the baptism waters to publicly declare, Jesus is my Savior and I'm not ashamed of it. And you need to do that. We've got to be honest before God. I think the next place we've got to be honest is with ourselves. With ourselves. Is your relationship with Jesus, your spiritual life, really what you present it to be? And here's what I mean. Is Jesus really the priority of your life? Is he the priority? Again, do you look the part or have you made Jesus the priority? In just a few verses in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to navigate through. In a few weeks, Jesus says this. Of all these things, I want you to seek first the kingdom of God. Make the kingdom first. Make me first. And make my righteousness first. Why? Because after that, all these other things will be added to you. Are you making the kingdom first? You've got to be honest with yourself. There's two people in this room that know. You and the Holy Spirit knows. Here's a third place I think we've got to be honest, and that is in our relationships. In our relationships. I know 
that for some of us, there are areas of ongoing deception in your relationships. In your marriage, is there ongoing deception? Are there half-truths? I'll tell it to here, but I'm telling all the other part. Are there half-truths? In your friendships, are there areas of ongoing deception? In your work, bosses, do you find yourself blurring the edges of truth to make yourself look better to your employees? Employees, do you find yourself blurring the edges, taking credit for things that aren't yours to make yourself look better to your boss? Is there deception in your relationships? Some of you right now, some of you know the exhaustion of hiding the secret. You know it. And in the labor of hiding, you're just perpetually defeated at the work you have to put in to keep it hidden. Can I tell you a secret this morning? Jesus wants to give you victory over that. Over what, When I say secret sin, over whatever comes to mind, Jesus wants to give you victory over that. And listen to me. You ready? The victory, the freedom, the liberation from that secret sin is tucked in right behind your confession that it's an issue in your life. Your freedom over that sin is waiting for you right behind your confession that it exists. You do not have to walk out of this building with the same sin struggle and no hope of liberation that you walked in here with. It is waiting for you on the other side of confession and repentance. Why? Because... When you hide it, the enemy can accuse you of it. And when he accuses you and it stays hidden, you stay perpetually defeated because you just are getting pounded into the ground by the enemy. So I want to tell you two realities. The first is this. What you think is hidden will never stay hidden. That is the testimony of my life. Some of you know that to be true. What you think is hidden will never stay hidden. And can I tell you something about that? That is actually a mercy that's a grace. That's the love of God being extended, to, extended toward you that he would not allow what you've hidden to stay hidden. And can I tell you something else? When you bring it out into the light and you let the light of Jesus shine on it, and you let the mercy of God shine on it. But pastor, you just, man, I can't, I, if I say that, she's going to leave. We're going to let the mercy Jesus, there's a promise of mercy here. I want you to hear it. Proverbs 12, excuse me, Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, meaning what you will do is wilt and decay. You will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain what? Say the word, it is mercy. That's what you'll get. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And I love this. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance and the presence of God are absolutely linked with one another. How do I get more of God's presence in my life? I repent of the sin that's in my life. Do you need some refreshing this morning? We've got to be honest before God. We've got to be honest with ourselves. And we've got to be honest 
in our relationship. So in a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to worship. Some of you just need to hit this altar and pray. And just say, God, i got to be honest. Some of you need to grab one of us by the hand and say, I need you to pray for me. This secret thing, I need freedom from it. Some of you just need to take your spouse's hand, sit down right where you are, and say, I love you, and i got to tell you something. Some of you, when you go home, need to put your arm around your children and say, I've told you half-truths, but I need to come clean. Some of you need to be a different person tomorrow morning at work than you were Friday when you clocked out. How are you going to get there? The transforming work of the gospel. That's it. Father, I love you and I'm so thankful for your word and the power of it and how it presses us, Lord. Unrelentingly presses us toward holiness. And so now, God, as we respond, I'm praying that you would move in us, that your uh, spirit would be here, that you would cause us to run toward obedience, run toward integrity, run toward honesty. Help us to flee the influence of the enemy and run and pursue truthfulness and pursue Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship.